morning, everybody. When I came to Asbury my first year, finished my PhD, had all those guys up at Yale no longer breathing down my neck, uh, I started accumulating a set of what I call postgraduate mentors, established scholars who did not know me as a student and uh, who I could consult and plot the next stage of my life with. And one of those was an extremely distinguished Old Testament scholar, whom I shall not name, um, that I just, I admired, I read everything he did, took everything I was doing and ran it past him, flew to England once to meet this guy, to ask him, you know, questions, and he sat there and listened to my kind of stupid questions. Then one day I found out that he had a secret life, one that he had not told me about, pro wrestling. <laughs> he didn't watch it on television. He went to pro wrestling live. And I thought, I mean, my whole world fell apart. <laughs> and, and I thought, why would such a distinguished, brilliant, gifted, accomplished, respected, admired, tenured scholar who racked up Ivy League jobs like it was nothing, pro wrestling. You know, I grew up thinking that was like trashy, you know, no civilized person, you know, would admit to watching it. And I asked somebody, I said, how could he do this? And this fellow said, look, he said, you go in that arena and the crowd is all fired up. And that guy walks up to the microphone and he says, let's get ready to rumble. And he said, the room explodes. He said, you've never been at something. And he just saw my face just like, you do. I mean, suddenly you realize you're surrounded by apostates and degenerates. Well, I think the Israelites believed at the end of Joshua 4 that they were ready to rumble. They had spent 40 years in the wilderness seeing their predecessors dying off due to their unbelief. They're a very distinct group. Everybody that was 20 years or older at the Exodus has died and so everybody in this group was either under 20 at the Exodus or they've been born in the wilderness. Nobody in the group then, except for Joshua and Caleb, is older than 60. They've experienced a separation from their past in the dying off, not really of their parents. It's not a, a, an easy parent's children, but the dying off of the people who saw the Exodus, who experienced it firsthand, and those for whom the Exodus is a story told, they are, are formed into a cohort, really. Um, they have been separated from their past. Uh, they're defined by the wilderness, by waiting, by not having seen the first events that founded their faith. They're being led by none other than Moses, who is mentoring and preparing them to be the generation that will experience the fulfillment after centuries of waiting of God's promise of the land. They've heard the book of Deuteronomy live. I mean, I've seen some bands live, and that was exciting. But imagine being in the group when Deuteronomy drops. 
Wow. I mean, they've experienced a delicate transition in leadership. In tribal societies, when the great old, when I was in Kenya, we called him the great old Mze, the, the old guy, dies, that transition to the next leader is very fragile and delicate and can go awry in more ways than it can go right. They've weathered that transition, and Joshua is now their leader. They've experienced the miraculous stopping of the Jordan River. They've crossed the river. Imagine the first night in Canaan. You roll out your bedroll, and you look up at stars that Abraham couldn't count, and you realize you can't count them either. And this is the land. This is the moment you've been waiting for, the promises of God coming to fulfillment. They're ready to burst out of that camp at Gilgal and hit Canaan with the likes of which they've never seen before. They're ready to do this thing. Let's go. Let's rumble. And then God says, wait just a moment. God puts the brakes on them just as they're revving up there. You know, this is a God thing. He does this all the time. People go, I'm ready. Let's do this. God, I'm ready. And God says, no, no, no. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Whenever you hear people giving, you know, urging everybody, get into action, do this thing. There's no time. They're not talking from the standpoint of heaven. God says, no, no, no. I mean, there'll be plenty of Canaanites. Always... You guys sit tight. A few things we need to do here. The story stresses the importance of complete preparation. Despite 40 years of preparation, despite the live performance of the book of Deuteronomy, all of this, and God says, no, there are some things we need to do still. Turns out in this chapter, there are five distinct events that bring their preparation to its conclusion. And given the context, and given the fact also that this text is not a sherd that dropped in the sand that we dug up and translated. This text has been curated and preserved and shaped generation after generation to continue to resonate for every generation that reads it. And so these five truths are not accidental or incidental. These five events that take place and the things they point to are crucial for every person who thinks they're ready to enter in to the inheritance God has promised. Five events. The first one is the alarm of the rulers of Canaan. These Canaanite kings seemed invincible. They were sponsored by Pharaoh. They had his Pharaoh's support, Pharaoh's weapons, training. They hired mercenaries. They were professional soldiers. Those spies who gave the report who died in the wilderness, they were right. These were impregnable cities defended by able armies, and Israel is a bunch of released slaves who don't know which end of the sword they're supposed to hold. And so those spies who said, we can never do this, were absolutely right. Being right wasn't their problem. Rahab's message, however, told another story in chapter 2 that these apparently impregnable towns with these undefeatable kings in their professional armies and their state-of-the-art weaponry were a hollow shell. 
And Rahab sends the message back with the spies to Joshua. The whole land is melting away. What that means is, literally, the people are abandoning the rulers and heading for the hills. That these cities, these rulers are fragile and it could all cave in at any minute. What they did not know was they were just 50 years away from the most spectacular historical and cultural collapse the world had ever seen. About 1200 BC, the entire eastern Mediterranean blew up and fell down. Every known empire collapsed. Writing was lost for a century. International trade stopped. It was a bigger disaster than the collapse of the Western Roman Empire by far. A culture thousands of years old went up in smoke. And so when Rahab says, these kings that you guys are so scared of, they're just empty suits. She was saying something that was going to be dramatically proven true in the decades to come. And so we find out now that they had heard about the crossing of the sea. Rahab tells them that. But now we find out 40 years later, they've heard about crossing the river. So those guys who crossed the sea and defeated Pharaoh, yeah, they're the ones who crossed Jordan yesterday. And so unbeknownst really to the Israelites, there is an incredible collapse of morale in Canaan. Now, what's the key here? What's the real point? The point is, God is always going ahead of his people. It isn't just depending on us sitting in camp wondering how we're going to do this. And also, however fearsome and indefeatable, however invincible the enemy appears, he's a sham. It's a shell. And we shouldn't be intimidated. Oh, nobody will believe in a God who, well, guess what? Maybe God doesn't believe in them either. We have to realize God is God. And the intimidation of the culture around us is coming from people who are scared. And so Canaan's power is based on force, fear, fortresses, false values, fake news, phony affluence, and Pharaoh. Israel's power is based on faith, fidelity, family, freedom, fairness, frugality, and farming. The point is, before you rumble, realize God has gone ahead of you. God is already at work in Canaan. And the fear that they feel is because of what God has done in you. And so, as people hear what God has done in us, not just 40 years ago at the Red Sea, but yesterday at the Jordan River, we're ready to rumble when God has so worked in our lives that others know about it before we tell them. The next thing that happens is even more weird. The text even starts, now, at that time, that is, at that very moment when you would least expect it, God said, has anybody got a flint knife? Joshua goes, Flint knife? Yeah, we, we need to circumcise these people. I mean, this is an odd thing to ask. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was going to get a group of people ready to launch a big attack on a besieged city, the first thing I would do is not let's circumcise everybody. There's reasons why the Jews do this to babies, okay? So all these adult warriors are looking at each other and said, what did he say? Yeah, um, it seems to offer the enemy like the perfect opportunity to like attack. Can you imagine the guys up in Jericho looking down? What are they doing now? <laughs> I'm sure they, they're circumcised. What? <laughs> what is circumcision? Well, it's you take, no, never mind. And they're thinking, let's go get them, let's attack them. And then some guy says, it's a trap, you know, or something like that. I don't know, it's not the most intuitive suggestion to prepare for battle. So, so what's going on here? And I believe me, you heard the reading, right? Did the author even totally know what was going on? I mean, it's one of the most convoluted, who, was, who wasn't, why, who died, you know, all this stuff. Then the scribes, they go nuts with it, the textual variants on this are just, just, you know, go on and on and on and on. And it all turns on how in the world do you circumcise somebody twice? I mean, the doing of it at all before battle is a little strange. Can't this wait until like we're in the land? Um, but they said circumcise them twice. Like nobody gets off on this, you know, it's like twice. In fact, it is so controversial. And the early church used this text as a polemic in favor of allegory. Because they said, obviously, it is impossible to circumcise twice. So, the first circumcision is under the law of Moses. The second circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, you know. And so, right here in the text, we have, you know, two literal and spiritual. And so, the early church goes, you know, marching off with that. Um, But still, you have a bizarre metaphor. You still got a process there if you're going to work with that. And so, what really is this about? Well, circumcision going back to Genesis 17, was the sign of the covenant. It was an indication of whose they were. That's why this was done for children. Everywhere else in the world that I know of, circumcision is a puberty rite. It signals the passage into adult life. And so it has a built-in meaning. But when you move it to birth, you essentially remove that meaning and attach a new meaning to it. And so God says to Abraham, this is my covenant with you. This mark in your body is my covenant with you. It was the definition of Israel's very identity as God's covenant people, who they were, an inescapable reminder indelibly carved into their flesh. And however it works, whatever it Whatever the mechanics were, this group of people had either not been circumcised or were improperly circumcised due to the unbelief of their parents, an overhang of their Egyptian cultural bondage. But without the sign of the covenant and all that it signified, they were not ready to confront Canaan. Now, it's important to realize that conquering Canaan wasn't the mission. We make a mistake if we think Joshua's all about battles. The mission is asserting the lordship of God as as his covenant people 
over a specific piece of ground in time and space. The mission is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the mission. And if their identity is not clear, they will never accomplish that mission no matter how many cities fall before their attack. And so this, this, the lesson, if you will, is you're not ready to rumble until your identity is clear. I love Cormac McCarthy's rather grim novel, The Road, and the uh, movie that goes with it. Don't run out and read it um, on that recommendation. It's dark, very dark. The end of the world has happened. Lots of folks uh, uh, are dead, and there's a man and his son, and they are traveling in some kind of vague hope to get to some place where they think they will find others. The roads are filled with gangs of thugs and cannibals and awful people. The dad's got a revolver with three bullets in it. One is for the first person attacking them. The other two is for his son and himself. It's that grim. There's a scene where he confronts someone with this revolver, and it's a terrifying moment, and they, the, the person they're confronting uh, goes away, and the little boy looks up at dad and says, Dad, are we still the good guys? And that's a really important point. And the circumcision requirement is saying identity is essential. Regardless of how difficult or awkward it is, and even the fact that it's invisible, it's not something people, act, it's not like a flag waving that everybody can see. The point is who we are in our most private, intimate, personal, hidden dimensions of our lives, that's our identity. We are who we are where nobody sees. And circumcision links identity of God's people also to sexuality and says who you are when nobody sees is intimately bound up with your stewardship of your sexuality. So we're not ready to rumble until deep in our souls, in the most private of places, at whatever the cost, we belong entirely to God. Now, I guess while they're getting over that, they have to do something else, right? They've got a, some time to kill. So uh, they decide, we're going to have Passover now. Now, there's another weird thing to do on the eve of battle. Let's celebrate Passover we're going to have a week where we sing songs, we tell stories, we'll eat special meals, we'll dress up like we're traveling, um, and the children will ask questions. Why is this night different from every other night? You know, all these things. All of this while Canaan is still looking down at us. What are they doing now? Looks like a VBS. What's a VBS? <laughs> I mean, they're wearing like Bible time costumes. Dude, we're in Bible times. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm so stupid. Surely there were those in the group in Israel who said, Joshua, Joshua, this is not the time to rehash ancient stories. It doesn't matter what happened back then if it doesn't happen here today. We have to live in the now. While we're here playing vacation Bible school, Canaanite forces are unchallenged. But God says, sit down. Swipe the blood on the door. Eat the meal. 
ask the questions, tell the stories, sing the songs. Because you see, who we are is more than just our inward, intimate, personal identity. It's also where we've come, what brought us here, and who we're with. And God wanted them to be clear about the script that they were living out. And the Passover is all about remembering. Memory is strange. You know, isn't it funny how trauma, you never have to, um, except in cases of really deep therapy, you usually don't have to work to remember trauma. It's just there. I mean, push a button and boom, the whole scene will come back in your head. And it's like trauma sinks to the bottom of your soul and starts sending out this poison all through the, the, the uh, sea inside of you, full of bitter poison from this trauma. No work at all involved in remembering that. Isn't it funny how blessings doesn't seem to work that way? God does something great for us this week. We've already forgotten it. It was wasted on us. It bounced off. And the fact is, in a fallen world, we have to do something intentional to take the good things God has done and embed them in our lives so that they release their perfume into the room and counteract the toxicity of all the trauma that's down in the swampy depths of our subconscious. That's what sacraments are about. This do in remembrance of me doesn't mean, I forgot he did rise from the dead, didn't he? It means we recollect in such a way that the reality of the thing comes back to us afresh. That's what Passover was. Passover circumcision was about a sign. Passover is about a story. This is who you people are. You came out of the world. You came out of slavery. You came out from under the most powerful tyrant in the entire world. And you were delivered. You stood in front of the sea. The sea opened. And there's a long list in the later rabbinic service for the Passover that uh, has the phrase dainu, which means it's enough. And they go through, I don't know, it must be 40 things. If he had only done this, it would have been enough. If he'd only done this, it would have been enough. And, and the kids like saying, die, dainu, die, dainu. Everybody sings this. But it really says something about the story. By the time you get to the end of that litany, wow, you are really, really, really fired up. The Passover is about the story. And important, though, a lot of people get this story thing wrong. Like at this point, they say, and so your job now that you are in the story is to write the next chapter. No, that's wrong. You and I, we're not the authors of the story. And we're not the editors of the story. Our job is to let the story write the next chapter of our life. Okay? I'm not warping the story to fit what I am because that's a losing proposition. No, I want to bend myself into that story. God is the author of the story, and I'm the character. And the author decides what the characters do. So I want God to write me into that story, and that's what the Passover is about. It's about telling that story so that we rewrite the scripts of our life so that we're living in accordance with that story. Well, i got to go quick now. There's two other things that happen. One, and they're also unexpected, the manna stops. 
bad idea. Like just before you go into a battle, somebody says, oh, by the way, all that magic food you've been getting that's falling out of the sky, nope, not getting that anymore. It says they ate from the produce of the land. One of the signs that you're in the promised land is the manasesis. And you will now have to live in the land. You'll have to know it, learn it, learn its soils, learn its hydrology, its water, learn where the rock is too close to the surface of the soil for a, for a crop to grow. All these things that go with agriculture is work. You know you enter the promised land because there's not as many miracles as there used to be. The mythology that the life of faith is supposed to be this unending chain of miracles is just wrong. It doesn't fit Scripture. When we enter the promised land, we are expected now to be stewards and to get to work. Even before the fall in the garden, Adam is told his job is to work the garden and to guard it. It's not going to be magic or miracle. It's going to be interaction with the creation. The last thing that happens, so you're ready to rumble when you're ready to let God take off the training wheels and embrace the burdens and blessings of the promised land. Last thing that happens is Joshua is taking a moment by himself, and he looks up, and here's a heavily armed guy with a sword drawn. Just what I need right before the battle. And Joshua asks the perfectly normal question, are you, on, are you with us or with our enemies? I love the answer, and interpreters always worry about who this person was. Was he Michael the archangel? Was it a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? It doesn't matter. This person is a surrogate for the divine presence. That's all you really need to know. And this guy says, are you with us or with our enemy? And the answer is no. In Hebrew, it's just that simple. You know, the RS, new RSV expands it into something. But Hebrew just says, lo, no. Wait a minute, I gave you A or B and you said no. What does that mean? <laughs> God does not take sides. God takes over. And this guy says, I... And the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now, if I'm Joshua, which is a good sign of why I'm not, I say, see those gold bars right there? Huh? I, Moses, appointed me commander. So I don't know who you are. No, Joshua hits the deck. He gets it. Boom, that fast. That's why Joshua's Joshua and I'm not. He hits the deck and he says, what do you need from me? And then it's a very confusing statement. He says, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy. Everybody says, that's because he wants to be a servant. Well, I did something, Dr. Arnold will understand this, that very few, the non-scholars don't know. I went through every visual relief of depicting ancient life that I could, looking for people who were barefoot. After I'd done this, I found someone had already done this and written an article about it. I was really upset. <laughs> But especially in Egypt, there is no correlation between social class and shodness. Just so you know, you heard it here. Uh, masters and slaves wear shoes or go barefoot. Men and women wear shoes or go barefoot. The only rhyme or reason seems to be, brace yourself, this is deep. You wear shoes if you're going on a journey or if you're working where your feet might get hurt. Otherwise, people tended to go barefoot. That's it. 
So, what's going on here? Well, I think it's two things. Number one is, and I love this. I hope this is right. The angel says, take off your shoes, man. This is holy ground. You're home. I just think that's powerful. What if taking off your shoes on holy ground is just, hey, we're home. You know, so take your shoes off. The other thing, and this is a bit counterintuitive also, is every time you encounter the holy in the Old Testament, you don't contact it with your skin. There's always a barrier between skin and the holy. And so when the angel says the ground you're standing on is holy, remove your shoes. Skin-to-skin contact with the holy is talking about intimacy. So my favorite line this commander speaks, though, and it's the one I want to end you with, is he says, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. I have arrived. We're not ready to rumble, folks. We're not ready to move into what God has called us to until the commander of all of God's forces says to us, while we are on the ground face down, says to us, I'm here. Let's pray.